0: Sunshine, good
1: books. It's going to rain. good. It's going <laughs> to rain this afternoon, but that's great. When it rains, you can sit inside and read a book. You can. So let's get started because I've, we've got some interesting writing today. Jan, dolce et Decorum est Pro Patria Mori. Does it oh, ring a bell at all?
0: Um, no, it sounds
1: very nice. Rolls off the tongue. It's actually, these lines are actually from the Roman lyric poet Horace, but it was co opted by a poet called Wilfred Owen uh, at the end at well, World War I and his poem was Dulcat decorum es pro patria mori but the way Owen utilised it was to t- call it the old lie Dulcat decorum es means it is sweet and honourable to die for one's country and my author today, Claire Coleman has taken that old lie, in a book entitled The Old Lie um, to Again, address that issue in a most intriguing way. So, Claire, welcome to Three CR. Hi, how are you? Now, there is, in fact, a particular significance to those lines <laughs> um, because you are not only just appealing to Owen; you've incorporated it, or incorporated that poem, especially in the novel.
2: I have. Um, I the, that particular poem kind of drove a lot of the um, imagery of the novel, particularly the first couple of chapters.
1: Of the novel, oh, I mean no. yes, and you
2: and and yeah, I've I've um, bracketed the the novel with the poem.
1: Yes, and I mean that that poem bent doubled like old beggars under sacks. We curse through sludge, and there's a gas attack, and all of these sorts of atrocities of war, and it comes up in your novel. But when is your novel set?
2: Well, it's set in um, an, und- an undetermined future. Um, I, I, c- I couldn't even tell you myself how many years in the future it is. But, but it's an intergalactic future. It's an intergalactic war, yes. So what we've got
1: then is a past going back to Wilfred Owen, 1914, World War One. We've got an intergalactic setting
2: in the future, but the issues and concerns come from where? Well, the issues and concerns are from now and um, from the maltreatment of Aboriginal people for 231 years now, it is, and the maltreatment of the Black Diggers from World War II. Who my grandfather was one.
1: Oh, right. So, what we've got in the characters within this story, and there are several threads, and this is the other interesting thing um, there are several characters which represent several threads, which all, and all of these characters represent several issues which all converge at the end of the novel. Now, the reader is going to have to read the novel to I find out how they I converge. hope they'll read it they anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they will. But here's the go. I think we should start exploring some of these characters to find out exactly what those issues are. So we have Corporal Shane Daniels. Yes. What can you tell us here? Shane is an interesting work.
2: Well, Shane um, is... Um, the character of Shane is essentially the every soldier, in, in a way. Yes. Um, in, in that there's a, there's a lack in war fiction of stories about just the everyday grunt who survives the war. And Shane becomes from, goes from a corporal to a lieutenant, takes yes. the initiative. But there's something interesting about Shane. We make assumptions about Shane yeah, until... We- yeah, well, that's right. There's an assumption that people can, that people will make. I can guarantee people will make assumptions because I, I like making people make assumptions. And many of the assumptions about about Shane Daniels collapse throughout the novel, which is kind of a, a fun thing to do to readers. It's yes. not. It's could be considered slightly mean unless you get unless you imagine it as um, all the clues are there. Yes. people just aren't seeing them. And what our expectations are as a reader, but it's. Later
1: on, that we start to discover more about Shane. So, how much can you reveal, or not?
2: I'd prefer not to reveal what Shane's secret is that gets revealed, because okay. because it's, it's it'll be more fun for people to find out. But it's, needless to say, it's there's um I'm I think in my fiction I'm kind of known for um letting people make assumptions and then then pulling them rug out from under them, and it's 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 a fun thing to do, and it's kind of a good pattern to develop. And, and we do that as readers quite a lot. Uh,
1: Shane is fighting for the Federation. The <laughs> I
2: found that name interesting. It is interesting. It's got... I drew together two things in that. There's the, the Federation of Australia, uh, which formed in 1901, which when it formed, Aboriginal people were welcome in as part of, and also the Federation from Star Trek. Oh,
1: right,
2: yeah. Because the, the, the good army in Star Trek is called the Federation, mm. um, which in Star Trek is a supposed to be a multiracial federation, yet for some reason... In the in the enterprise, there was only one non human on the ship, <laughs> even though it was supposed to be an intergalactic multi species federation. So I was kind of <laughs> making a joke about this about the Star Trek federation. Was Star
1: off. Trek, and perhaps even about Australia, and it's about nation. Australia,
2: absolutely because of federation. Well, yeah, a we, federation was at the time in 1901 when we formed the country. We saw we had the white Australia policy, mm. so Australia was a federation drawing together all the people of the country as long as they were white. Yes. I mean, the indigenous were the flora and fauna yes. until it was changed. And during the Boer War, um, Aboriginal soldiers who went to the Boer War, some of them had no choice or taken those servants, were left behind because they couldn't come back to the country. Well, now, this gets into some very interesting concepts because you've got Jimmy who uh, is escaping from a form of bonded Labour. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> that's again, um, like I've done in my first novel Terran and it's a reference to the fact that in Australia we ignore the existence of slavery. In in this country. We had slavery in this country. We had two three types of slavery. We had Aboriginal people who worked um, and weren't allowed to be paid. They, would, In fact, Aboriginal people weren't allowed to own money but were forced to work. So that was slavery. We had the Kanakas from the South Sea Islands who were kidnapped from their islands and forced to work. And we had Chinese bonded labourers in the in the gold fields where people from China came here looking for money but they didn't realise when they left that it would have taken 10 years to pay off the money that they were put in there. But
1: Jimmy's trying to get yes. home. So that's, that's one storyline, but it's, it's something that actually happened yes. to the Indigenous of Australia. You've got William, who's held captive and used for medical experiments. Yes. And the medical experiment that has taken place?
2: Well, it's actually, there's several medical experiments. One is, of course, um, trying to find a cure for disease that, that may or may not have been um, caused by the people who are testing it, which <laughs> well, this leads that there's a, a new weapon that is there's been a devised. new weapon um, again um d- thinking that one if i can draw in more historical references to make people think about them why not draw in Maralinga as well um but basically in the novel we've got a new weapon which is understandable let's find a new weapon to
1: uh dispose of the enemy but we've got to test it somewhere That's and right. hang on, echoes of Maralinga That's and right. echoes of a landscape that is basically made,
2: uh, w- well, wasted. Wasted by the bombs, yeah. yeah. Well, people, I'm still shocked by the fact that there are, I meet people all the time who did not know that we had nuclear testing on land on Australian soil. And if they do know that, they don't know that it wasn't us that did it.
1: And the, yes. it was the British. It
2: was the, we, British. We had to let the British. We let the British do it. After look, fifty years after Federation, we allowed the British to test nuclear weapons and they didn't share their data. <laughs> so, like, but it was the Empire. It's like it's it's almost like we're stupid as a country,
1: yeah. really. Now the character I find absolutely fascinating, whether we get through them all, I don't know. But ITA mm. and she's been abandoned. She yeah. was in fact almost used as a pet until it was inconvenient, um, and she's uh, well, basically abandoned. But I find then the question of language interesting. Here. Yes.
2: Well, the, that's right. There's a lot of Aboriginal people who, um, when they return to family after a stolen generation, um, can't speak the same language as their own relatives. And that, kind of, that idea of not, being able, of not being able to speak your culture's language was playing on my mind. I don't speak my um, Indigenous language at all. I speak a few words here and there, but I, I've learnt it as an adult. What I do know,
1: but what does that do then? In not being able to speak your language,
2: well, it, make, it, gives you, it makes it difficult to connect the country, to connect to people, to connect the place, um, to communicate with anyone you meet. It's it's quite a, a challenge, and um, and there's but there's more there's more to it than that as well. Um, I was in, um, influenced a bit by um, the case of um, James Savage. I can't remember his, his, his name in Australia. He, he, was a, he was an Aboriginal man who was he, It was covered in the Archie Roach song, Manyana. He was taken as part of the stolen generation and given to American missionaries to raise, and they took him back to America. And then when he was 12 years old, he angered them, and they dumped him on the streets, abandoned him on the streets. And he was on the streets in America, and because he was dark-skinned, he assumed he was African-American. Mm -hmm. he did not know his ancestry or who his family were until in a um, drug-induced frenzy because he was taking drugs and alcohol to to blank his thoughts in a drug-induced frenzy he raped and murdered somebody and it was then he found out that that he was Aboriginal because his lawyers desperately searched for his family finding his biological family and Mm -hmm. found them in Australia
1: Yeah, but this is what we've done this is what, yes European settlement has done Uh, you've got Lieutenant Romany Zetz, call sign Romeo, and uh, a fighter pilot uh, who marries Harper.
2: Now, how much can you tell us here? Well, I can tell you that there's a couple of interesting things I've done on purpose. One is, um, it's, it's really weird. When we, have, we have the concept, in. we know from science fiction that you know, when you, if you get the weight down, a spaceship is more manoeuvrable. That's just that's simple physics. But no one ever comes up with the idea of, well, what if most or all the pilots are women? generally on average lighter. So I played with that for a bit and I thought what the what the world really needs is a swaggering, gunslinging, five foot two lesbian fighter pilot. <laughs> that's that's what that's what that's what the that's what science fiction needs.
1: But but again, you're raising contemporary issues. Here, Absolutely. Uh in terms of how we see relationships, what our expectations are. But here's the question. We've got all of these characters representing various abuses, mistreatment of colonialism, all of these sorts of things. You've got very strong women in uh, the the lead roles. But what's fascinating, as a reader, we identify with the main characters. We want them to succeed. We project ourselves into their lives thinking, you know, we're, we're barracking for these people and we want a good outcome. The question is then... If these are contemporary issues, are we thinking the same for what is taking place now?
2: Well, that's that's there's a reason I write speculative fiction rather than writing realist fiction, to my mind anyway, which is, in my experience, people are more likely to identify with people, characters not like them, if they think it's in the future or in another world or something. People, you know... For example, in The Lord of the Rings, everyone identifies with the hobbits and the elves and whatever, and they're not us. So I thought if I put it in, the, in space, people would be more likely to think to identify and embrace the characters. When if you wrote in a contemporary they go, right. oh, like Aboriginal lesbian, who cares? Exactly. <laughs> so I thought if I put it in space, it'll make people think more. But
1: how do people behave like that? How is it that well, we're removed from it, I presume? But uh, so we can, but
2: we don't then apply the same principles in real life. Well, I'm hoping that um, in in reading my works, both the old Terra teranalias, people get these um, time shifting things I do, shifting histor- historical events into the future, or or like the future into the into history, or whatever whatever I'm doing, like messing with um, ideas of linear time. Will encourage people to maybe have um, identify more strongly with the people who are oppressed in our society rather than just going well they're just the oppressed people
1: do you think it's possible given what's taking place now and we haven't got time to really open up this can of worms but this is what australia's facing now
2: absolutely australia is is acting in a lot of ways quite racist um if you think about you know the the um as the promo just before this event go the the japarung trees the, the governor's got to bulldoze them there's no good reason for it and they've got we've got people on an island north of the country acting as scarecrows or heads on pikes you've got this in in the novel as well
1: because we're putting people on uh, a manis uh Space space station because they don't want them on the planet and we're use we're using earth as a the home ground for retired soldiers so what are we actually fighting for the land's been overtaken Claire, we're going to have to end the interview there. I'm sorry. There's so much more to talk about. Claire Coleman, the book, the old lie, hash a or hashet publication. Jan. Oh
0: well, yeah. Well, what I admire, and Claire's done it. She's got these refugees as scarecrows, you know, and and it's it's the ability to form words into sentences that sometimes do the most incredible jump into your mind, so that the reader lives the story. Jane Sullivan has been a big reader forever. Welcome back, Jane. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jane. Well, as a literary journalist, you read books all the time. So how
3: have you limited those books into story time? Well, I did a little process of selection because what I was doing was going back to read the books of my childhood and of course there are an awful lot of books I read when I was a child so I had to limit it somehow so I thought well first of all I would just stick to books I read between the ages of seven and 11 because those to me I think were the really formative years of reading. I was old enough to be able to read by myself but I wasn't quite old enough to read adult books and understand them and um, I thought I would do just fiction not poetry Um, and not fairy tales. But there's one important Mm. exception to that. And I thought I would choose about 12 to 15 books to write about. And then really, it was the ones that came up into my mind and were nudging my mind with the greatest urgency that I chose.
0: Well, let's take an example of a book I'm sure everyone knows, The House at Pooh Corner by A.M. Milne. Why did you like it as a child?
3: It was just a a wonderful world to go into, I think. I read that before Winnie the Pooh. Um, It was the first A.A. Milne book I read. I was very young at the time and I've still got my original copy and it is signed by Christopher Robin. Yes, (laughs) because as
0: an adult, you actually met him.
3: Yes, yes, I did. It was a strange sort of meeting. I was a journalist on um, a local newspaper in uh, south of England and we uh, we had a bit of a campaign to save the Pooh Sticks Bridge, which is a, a real bridge. And it's in Ashdown Forest in in Sussex. And I went along to report on this campaign. And there was Christopher Milne, as he he was known then, who's A.A. Milne's son. And he was the model for Christopher Robin. And he was then um, a middle-aged man. And uh, he was very, very uncomfortable in front of the cameras and and all the journos. And and he really looked like he didn't want to be there at all. And later on, when I read about him, I understood why. Well, this is, this is something we get in the book. Mm. You,
0: give it, you tell us the book. You give us a little synopsis of the story. You then give us a little bit about the author, which is most interesting. And then you reread it and yes. tell us what you think. Yes. So what did you think about The House at Pooh Corner? Did it...
3: Well, I loved it still. I was nervous. I thought maybe I'm going to find that it's very twee and, and, you know, cutesy. But I didn't find that. And I think the reason was that the characters are so great that they, they still spoke to me. And I would thought of them living in this very idyllic place and everybody was happy. But actually, when you get to it, the animals are not very happy. They all have all sorts of little problems. There's a lot of jockeying for position and social status. And everybody wants to be smart. and Most of them aren't, although some of them aren't the illusion that they are smart and they all want to suck up to Christopher Robin who's a sort of god in, in this little world and so there's all this sort of the office politics going on in, in a forest is <laughs> amazing. But what I like about it too, because as with
0: your journalist insight, you explain how it's done. This mm. is a quote, The cleverness of the writing turning a father-son story into a make-believe about make-believe and gradually it morphs into stories in their own right with no sign of the adult telling them. And that's what we really got. And, of mm. course, the illustrations were great
3: too. Wimple. Oh, yes. E.H. Shepard was one oh, of the great see. illustrations. Of, of the time, so yes.
0: a thousand a acre, oh, hundred acres woods took us away from home, but to a safe place. Mm. And would a real child be brave enough? To go through the back of a wardrobe into? <laughs>
3: well, I tried. We, <laughs> we had a wardrobe up the top of uh, the stairs in the house where I was living in London. And every now and then I would creep into this wardrobe, which was empty yeah. and it was very dark inside. And I would just creep towards the back and think, oh, any minute now I'm going to be out in the snowy woods and the lamppost and there's going to be a little fawn <laughs> waiting for me. Uh, funnily enough, that never, it never
0: happened. happened. <laughs> But out of all the chronicles, it was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader that you
3: reread as an adult. Mm.
0: Why this one?
3: Well, there were a couple of reasons. Um, one was that uh, I remembered it very clearly, and I remembered that it had a character in it that I was really fascinated by, but I didn't actually like. You weren't supposed to like him, and that was a boy called Eustace. Mm. Um, I also remember that there was a really frightening scene and I, I was very drawn to what had frightened me as a child and this was something called the dark island mm. where you go into this it, it's just a big blobby black mass on the sea and when you go into it there's nothing there there's just darkness but what you then find is that your dreams come true and of course these are nightmares not happy dreams and the whole idea of the dreams coming true is so spooky because we all have these nightmares and we can all instantly remember what they are and what they can do to us so that was terrifying but I think the main reason more than any other is that this is a voyage to the end of the world and in C.S. Lewis's Narnia, the world was didn't, wasn't round. It was flat. So when you get to the end of the world, you don't know what's there. It's flat and maybe the water's pouring off the end into nothing. It's, it's a scary concept because you, it's like going into a black hole. You, you may just cease to exist. But I wanted to go on this journey again. I vaguely remember what happened. And it was fantastic. It was magic. It was quite numinous. I had no idea that C.S. Lewis was a Christian and this was all supposed to be a Christian allegory that just went completely over my head at the time. But when I read it again I was still thrilled by this journey into this place where the sun got larger and larger and brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter. They were journeying Towards the rising sun, and yet they don't get burned, and that the salt water turns to sweet water, and they can drink it, and it's all very frightening and very beautiful and unbearable and bearable all at the same time. It's now, wonderful. If any of you read
0: the Narnia stories, you'll know that there's a number of children, but in uh, this particular one, Lucy had a bigger mm-hmm. role, and of course, there's Alice in Wonderland and an eleven-year-old Maria from the warden's niece, and her desire is to be a professor of Greek at Oxford to write books and be famous, something young Jane may have strived for too.
3: Yes, and I uh, I wrote in the book that, in fact, Maria was a character I identified more than any other child in my reading. I don't quite know why because she lived in the 19th century. She didn't look anything like me but there was something about her that that I could relate to and the fact that she was was felt all alone and she was having a hard time at school and and she was very shy and nervous and, and she didn't feels she belonged anywhere. Grown-ups are frightening people. And yet she had this fantastic ambition, which you can imagine the 19th century was extraordinary. Big professor of Greek at Oxford heavens. Wow. (laughs) Now, it was a surprise to read about Louise
0: Alcott's Little Women. (laughs) What did young Jane think of that book?
3: Well, young Jane, I'm afraid to say, hated it. (laughs) In fact,
0: let's hear what young Jane thought of one of the characters best. Here we go.
3: Beth is that ghastly and wholly unbelievable creature, a good little girl. The moment I read that she spends her time caring for her six dolls, I despair. What anathema she must have been to me as a child, when I happily sent my dolls on dangerous adventures and ripped off their heads and limbs in battle. Beth is humble and sweet and a bit sickly and obviously destined to die young. And for me, her death can't come fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, Beth had a sister, Jo, who was a successful writer.
0: And as a young girl, your mother sent off a story you had written.
3: <laughs> what happened to that, Jane? Well, I didn't know about this. This was a, a secret thing my mother did. I've been writing this endless epic for for a long time, and she sent it off to a publisher. And in those days, publishers actually used to write quite long and detailed rejection letters and that's what came back and my mother gave this letter to me thinking you know I'd learned something from it I'd be quite excited to get a real publisher's opinion I was just mortified and horrified and utterly depressed at this response that told me I'd written this pathetic story with cardboard characters Aww. and they didn't know I was a child of course <laughs> so they didn't make any allowances they were pretty tough on me and it almost killed off my writing ambition i have to say. So that's another reason not to like that
0: Joe, who's yes. a successful
3: writer. I was jealous of her. I thought, why has she got it all? And I can't get anywhere. When I'm, when I'm, what? I was nine at the time, and I thought my career was at an end, and hers was just blooming all over the place and winning prizes and getting novel published. And, and look, then of course, as an adult,
0: you did some research on Louisa Alcott, and. Wrote about the pressure that was put on her to write about
3: morally upright women. That's right. I felt much more sympathetic towards Louisa Olcott after I'd read about her, although I still don't Definitely really like, like little book. women.
0: Yeah, <laughs> because, okay. yeah So she, It yeah, wasn't she, morals that we, we, we want to really um, set our mm, ideas on. Yeah. There was the adventure, and in, that was the agenda in The Silent
3: Three. Adventure, yes, adventure oh, okay. was very important to me. The Silent Three were three schoolgirls at a very old-fashioned boarding school in England, and I read about them in in the schoolgirl comics of the time, School Friend and so on. And uh, these three girls used to get done up in these gowns with with hoods and masks, and they became the Silent Three, and they were out to right wrongs and settle injustices and protect the weak from, from, the, from the evil schemers and, and just make everything right, basically.
0: Now, I had never heard about though this, this book, but mm. when you wrote about them in your column Turning Pages in the
3: Age, what happened? I got this big response. I got this huge response. And I have to say that, you know, I'd, I'd written about all sorts of things I thought were much more important, but that didn't matter. The, the people were, there. were all these sort of closet silent three admirers who came out to tell me. The great thing was there were girls and there were so few girl mole roddles, mole roddles, <laughs> role models when I was growing up. And uh, I, I really had to search around for them. But these girls were so fearless. And Betty Rowland, who is a leader, she had these flashing eyes, always flashing behind her mask. And, and she was so thrilling. And I thought, oh, wow, could I be like that? And this was one of the differences bet- between Betty Rowland and
0: and the Blyton books, wasn't it?
3: I'm afraid so, yes. I mean, we do we do all know about George, who was the rather boyish uh, girl in, in the uh, Same as Five. But I have to say that mostly the, the girls I encountered in when I reread Ian Blyton, and in particular a, a book called The Castle of Adventure, which is in a whole series of books about kids having adventures these girls they, they would tag along behind the boys there were two boys and two girls and they all went on adventures which sounds great in principle but in in, in practice it was the boys who had the most interesting adventures and the girls sort of made the sandwiches and washed up <laughs> and screamed when anything terrible happened so what about the other books
0: did did the women fare well did, were they as the major
3: characters in, the, in most of the other books you did no they weren't most of the characters were male and that applied to whether they were boys and girls and whether they're animals because of course a lot of the books I read were about animals Um, which was not actually a difficulty for me because what I did was I thought oh well I don't like the girls in this book or there aren't any girls in this book so what I'll do is I'll identify with the boys and when you're a kid that's very easy you just Mm. switch off and okay you're a boy and off you go fine. (laughs)
0: Jane Sullivan's book, Storytime, has books that were never on the children's shelf. Mm. We start with um, books from the myths of Greece and Rome, and one of the last books, Great tales of terror and the supernatural. <laughs> now you still carry thoughts about one of those short stories to this day Mm.
3: you had, really yeah. had to, come on you were all growing up now. Yeah uh, I know, I can't, can't believe it. it. Decades and decades later, this was a story called Silent Snow, Secret Snow by Conrad Aiken and I still remembered it so vividly because it had terrified me so much It's not a supernatural story it's about a little boy who just gets caught up in this internal world where it's snowing all the time and he becomes so caught up in it that he rejects everything and everybody else and he, he, he yells at his parents to get out of his room so he can be quiet with the snow and what terrified me about this story was that in the first place I thought I could be that little boy, I could be like that, I could go into some world like this and the other thing that terrified me was that somewhere inside me I actually wanted to do it. And reject my parents, reject everything and just go into this little tiny world where you're just shrinking down into a tiny little seed. And and that was very, very frightening to me. And so I, even now I approached it with fear again. Uh, you, look, through the book you learn a lot about Jane Sullivan, mm, but also mm.
0: about uh, reading, reading to get, release those violent impulses like uh, <laughs> as you do in The Magic Pudding. Yes, yes. Or learn empathy. As you as you do in other books too, mm. and oh, so we've it, look. I just I I loved it. I've reread so many of the of the um, of the stories. So what were your favourite books as a child? What did they invoke with you? Was it laughter, surprise, or even a sense of fear that made you read on? (laughs) So thank you very much, Jane Sullivan, with Storytime. Pleasure, Jane.
1: And it's a well-known fact that any child that has not been introduced to A. Milne has had a deprived childhood, in my opinion. But we've got to go. (laughs) I had been talking to Claire Coleman, her novel The Old Lie, Hashett